And so at the end of a bayonet, my father was forced out of Palestine in what's called the Nakba. One's circumstances do not change their responsibility. We are absolutely honoured today to have Nasser Masnim. Nasser tells his story growing up in Chutlam, sacrificing to provide for his family and making a life for himself in Australia. I'm the accidental Palestinian Australian. Nasser has taken the responsibility of his family, his mistakes and his Palestinian identity. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu uh, alaikum everyone. Uh, welcome to another Safi Bros podcast. We are absolutely honoured today to have Nasser Mashni from the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network. Mashallah, he's here with us today to share his success story. Uh, so I'd love to welcome Nasser. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome. Wa alaikum Thank you so very much. I'm actually really excited and honoured to be with you today Thank and you your audience. Much. Thank Allah you. Bari. Thank you for coming. Allah barifik. So tell us, Nasser, uh, you were born here. So tell us about uh, how did you become Australian? Yeah, I'm the accidental Palestinian Australian. Uh, and I said that on Q&A to much shock of uh, Patricia Carvalis, my dear friend Patricia. Um, so I'm an accidental Australian and most Palestinians are accidentally something. We're accidentally something because we're not Palestinian firstly in Palestine because Israel exists where Palestine doesn't. And to the overwhelming majority of your uh, listeners and viewers, they'll understand the context of. But it's important for us, for those people that don't know, that Palestine was a country that existed, that ceased to exist. The people didn't cease to exist. But in its place, um, the world, for all of its guilt and its complicity, as they're complicit today, Gaza 23, they were complicit in the genocide and the Holocaust of the Jewish people in in, uh, Germany and in Western Europe. Guilty with that complicity, they decided to create a Jewish state. Um, At the time, there was less than 50 countries in the United Nations, and they put together this concept of partition. They would partition Arab Palestine into two separate areas, a Jewish state and an Arab state. Um, The overwhelming majority of the Jewish inhabitants of Palestine were recent uh, immigrants. There were Jews. The Jewish connection to Palestine is millennial, thousands of years. Um, No Palestinian denies Jewish connection the land. We just don't accept that it's greater than ours. It's not greater than ours. The same as ours. As the children of Abraham, we all own that land. Um, And so when they created or the UN voted overwhelmingly white United Nations, almost 200 countries today, about 50 odd countries then, when they voted then, 33 countries voted to partition Arab Palestine into a Jewish state and Arab state um, to create a Jewish majority country in a land with a Jewish minority, you have to do what's called demographic engineering. You have to move some people out. And move some people out, who do you choose to move? Well, in South Africa, it was black-white. Yeah, in Jim Crow, south of the United States, you know, the get out of Georgia, you black song birch, that sort of place. You know, you knew black-white slavery, uh, plantation owner. In Palestine, because the overwhelming majority of Jews in the world are in fact Arab Jews. You know, they're from Yemen, they're from Syria, they're from Palestine, Libya, um, Morocco, Iraq, Iran. They're Arab Jews. They're like us. They eat falafel, you know, <laughs> and hummus. They, the Gewelte fish and the, um, the Ashkenazi Jew, they are recent emigres post-World uh, War II. And there was an influx in between um, the late 19th century uh, when the, with the foundation of modern Zionism and thing. Well, to create that Jewish majority state... 
They had to get rid of, demographically engineer, ethnically cleanse 90% of the Arab indigenous population, which are Palestinian like my father. Um, and so at the end of a bayonet, my father was forced out of Palestine in what's called the Nakba, the catastrophe in 1948, where 750,000 Palestinians out of a total population of 900,000 were ethnically cleansed from their homes, wow. driven at the end of a bayonet in an orchestrated and um, mapped out process. So there is a book called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. It's written by Ilan Pape, um, and he's part of a Jewish, uh, an Israeli Jewish historical or historian club where they are called revisionists. They go back and have a look at the foundation of the modern state of Israel. And there's two schools within that revisionist school. There is the Ilan Pape school, which is we plan Dalit, which was the Zionist plan to ethnically cleanse Palestine, which said, you know, villages in the north have to be surrounded from the south, east and west. Who's in charge of that village? Uh-huh. Ahmed's in charge of that village. Right. If we kill Ahmed, uh, Ibrahim's going to say something. Kill Ibrahim too. And now everybody else will realize that the leaders are gone. Wow. They need to run. So pick out the leaders, kill them and tell everybody to go and then demolish the houses behind them. So 540 villages were depopulated and destroyed so people couldn't come back. And the reason they were depopulated and destroyed was solely because the inhabitants were not Jewish. It was all about what sort of person you were. were was you? that Muslim or Christian? So Muslim and Christians, absolutely. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. What, what, era was that, what was the era with your dad part of? Which, where did you come so from? So my, my dad, actually he's born in East Palestine, what's known now as West, the West Bank, just outside of Jerusalem. But my father was a, uh, a city kid, uh, you know, grew up in Jerusalem. So he was part of the resistance. Um, he fought Jewish terror gangs in, in the late 40s um, and ended up um, a refugee, cast out of his land, cast out of his home. Uh, How old was he? Uh, he was in his early twenties. Twenties, early twenties. So before he left, yeah, yeah. So my fa my father, if my father was alive today, he would be turning ninety eight oh. in two thousand and twenty four. So he's much older than my mother. Yeah. But we're going back to that. So all of those villages were depopulated. Ilan Pape says this was a crime, and we need to make peace with it and find a way to reconcile. Those Palestinians and their ancestors have to come home or have the choice to come home. And then there's the other school of thought, uh, Zionist school of thought, was, of course we had to do it. The problem is we didn't do it properly. Wow. There was 900,000 uh, Muslims and Christians here, and we left 150,000 of them, and we left some in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, in, in Naqsa War, 1967. We didn't do a good enough job. Israel should be Jewish only. Um, and so what you have is that situation today where Israel is an apartheid state, where there is two sets of laws, and the laws are governed not whether you're black or white, which is apartheid South Africa. It's whether you celebrate God on Friday or Sunday or celebrate God on Saturday. And if you celebrate God on Saturday, you get all the rights. And if you celebrate God on Friday or Sunday, you get secondary wow. rights. So my dad grew up in the 20s, and the 20s was magical Palestine. And I say magical Palestine because the Arabs, you know, because they were Islamophobes, they fought with Lawrence of Arabia against the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. Wow. We fought against the Ottoman Empire, all the Arabs, the Lebos, the Syrians, the Saads, everyone. We all fought against the uh, um, Ottoman Empire because we wanted to end the 400-year Ottoman uh, occupation. And if you look at that 
um, World War I memorials anywhere in Australia, yeah, you'll see El Alamein, Gallipoli, Palestine, because we were on the same side. At the end of World War I, everybody got a country. It was like Oprah Winfrey. Lebanon, you can have a country. <laughs> Syria, you can have a country. Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Kuwait. Palestine, you get a mandate. And the mandate was the first start of the conspiracy to give Palestine away to, to, to the European Jews, to Zionism. Um, so you fast forward, dad becomes a refugee, goes from a Jordanian prison to education in Lebanon. From Lebanon, he gets sponsored to come to Australia. Uh, he lands in Australia and he never thinks about getting married because he's a fide, you know, he's a freedom fighter. He's expecting to, that we, we are going to liberate Palestine at any moment. Um, and to his dying day, he thought we were going to be liberating Palestine at any moment. I still think we're going to liberate Palestine at any moment. Um, and I think we're closer than ever, as dark as it is, as dark as it is, I think we're closer than ever. Um, but he came here and eventually he worked out that maybe it wasn't that close and he should get married. Um, and he met my brother, my mother, and uh, she's Lebanese. Where, where did you settle? Where, well, so he started in Campbellfield, huh? Oh, wow. So he worked at Ford, and he knew Jack Nasser's dad. They used to work together. Oh, wow. Um, back, like, in the so late 50s, early 60s. originally from the north. Originally in the north. He was here for, <laughs> for a second. Um, and then and then the Arabs came, and he went, there's too many Arabs. <laughs> so he moved to Dandenong, uh, oh, which, which is where we're, we're all. Where the Afghans are now. No, where the Afghans are now, yeah. <laughs> Um, which became Little Lebanon. They followed him, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that's that's where I was born and, and grew up. Oh, so well. born in How many in the family? I've got two younger brothers. So, so you're the oldest? I'm the eldest. Oh, no. Why? So you copped all the... Yeah, yeah I had all the hard stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, my, hard stuff. <laughs> like I look at my youngest brother, go, got the easy cruise, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Where's the old ones cops it? So. We always cop it, yeah. These young guys don't know the... Uh, <laughs> no, they don't. So take us through. So... Dad was in Australia, worked at Ford. Yeah. So and what he, happened from there? So he, he, he worked at Ford and met mum and mum was a, um, uh, you know, came, she came in the early 60s and in a time when Australia was still very racist and you had a the white Australia policy. Yes, yes. And so we would take brown girls, Australia would take brown girls because they'll marry white guys and they'll have white kids. But, you know, this is how dumb this racist colony is. We'll take the brown girls and once they're here and they have citizenship, they can sponsor their family out. So, you know, like <laughs> what we did, you know, work the system as Arabs, <laughs> they, you know, they would send their daughters, they'd get settled, and then the daughter would, you know, sponsor out everybody. So mum came here and then bought out everybody. That's you know? right, that's right. And so the, the white Australia policy ended up being a backdoor for, you know, the Browns to come here. <laughs> yes. But alhamdulillah, they all came. Uh, mum and dad got married. She, um, she worked as a seamstress. Uh, my dad was a scientist. He worked at CSL, the Coma oh, wow. Serums Laboratory. That's scientist. Um, so he studied here. So he so I studied at AUB, American University in, in Beirut. Oh wow! Um, came here and worked at um, worked at CSL, Commonwealth Serums Laboratory. But he was, you know, because he was uh, an Arab, you know, and a Muslim. Um, they went regardless of your class, uh, your qualifications. You can wash the test tubes. Um, so mum was making more. As a seamstress, she worked for um, a company. We shouldn't say that company's name because they still exist. But her job was to take off Made in Japan and so on Made in Australia. Wow. Uh, that was her job. And she made more money doing that than Dad did make washing test tubes. Um, and so then Dad, you know, decided he'd work in Bass Strait. Um, and I've inherited my father's water legs, which is as soon as we walk on the pier, we get sick. <laughs> uh, Dad would get on the boat the barge into Bass Strait, 
be sick the whole way there, be sick for a whole day that he was there, work for four days, be sick on the boat all the way back, be sick for two days when he got home, you know, spend three or four days at home and then do it again. He became a union delegate because that was the only way to keep his job and not get sacked because uh, um, because he wasn't actually very productive as a, <laughs> as a, as a water worker. Um, and then, you know, from there he had another union delegate job for Bonlac, which was a milk, powdered milk supplier. And then they bought a milk bar. And so, you know, we're the classic, the classic um, Lebanese, uh, Lebanese thing to yeah, do. Lebanese we had what? That's what our parents did. <laughs> I think every, I think every, I think every uh, Lebanon United Nations had a discussion, buy a milk bar, buy a milk bar. Everyone started buying one. So, so we grew up in the back of a milk bar. You guys grew up in the back of a milk yes, bar. Some of my wife grew up in the back of a milk bar. <laughs> It's the best, the best training ground. Yeah, it is um, for customer service, for customer disputes, but also <laughs> to create. Um, you know, like I look at my children, and my children, you know, uh, twenty one, nineteen, and seventeen, and they're, and they're wonderful kids. Many thanks to their their beautiful mother. Um, not much of their dad in them, but um, the things that the challenges we had, the adversities we had to overcome, the customer service challenges, the wake up and open the shop, the seven days a week, yeah. it instilled in us a a work ethic, a customer service um, ideology, uh, an ability to engage with strangers immediately. Um, that you know, many like our children won't ever have that opportunity, irrespective of whether they have part time jobs at Burgies or, or wherever it might be. It's not the same That's as that. the. Um, How old were you when you started? When you started <clears throat> in the milk bar? When I started, I, I remember waking up in it. I, <laughs> I don't remember not having it. Like I sold my first packet of smokes when I was seven or eight. I imagine. Oh, you know, wow. You know, okay. Anyhow, so you have, anyhow, have so you, a Winfield. You've been in business. Your parents have been in business in the milk bar for a while. How long did you own that for? Um, so how long did I own it? I did. Oh, your parents. Own, yeah, it. my parents. So we we have to be um, like twenty something years. Wow. You know? Um, and, and because my father was so much older than my mother, you know, he couldn't go back to work. Yeah. Cause who would employ mm. yeah. a guy with a science degree when he was only qualified according to the Australians to wash test tubes, which wasn't enough to feed us. Subhanallah. Um, and then working in Bass Strait was not an option because he was always sick, you know, oh, um, uh, well, you know, self-employment, which was yeah. a milk bar. Yeah. Yes. Um, meant that, you know, we had a house which was attached to the shop and it meant he was always there and mum was always there. Um, that said, you know, dad was an absentee father. Mum raised us um, because dad was so um, engaged in the Palestinian struggle and the cause. And so he, um, um, you know, whether it was domestically or internationally, you know, he was constantly fighting the fight for Palestine. Um, and so, you know, we would see him fleetingly. Um, and, uh, uh, we, we, so from Dandenong, we ended up in a shop in, um, in Bo Morris in Cheltenham, um, oh. amongst all of the most prestigious golf clubs, um, in, in Melbourne. Um, and that'll feed into some other stories later on, but there was a golf course across the road and, you know, we were the only brown kids, you know, and, and I'm talking Bo Morris in the seventies. This is where Shane Warne grew yeah, up. Yeah. You know? Oh, wow. G'day mate. Here you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> G'day copper. <laughs> Um, th this is as white as Australia can be. And, uh, you know, I can tell you that my brothers and I, we shared a bedroom till I was 24. Um, you had a bunk bed and a single bed. And when we actually got a house and got our own bedrooms, you know, the first day we're like in a bedroom that was bigger than the room that the three of us used to sleep in. You know, the second day we just dragged mattresses into one room because we didn't know how to sleep alone. Subhanallah. 
Um, but, you know, the golf course across the road from us, we could run across there and pretend to play golf. But, you know, there was like two holes where nobody could see. But the white guys would come over the hill and see these brown kids. <laughs> and so the next thing, though, and the shop was just across the road, you know, and mum was on her own and, you know, there was three of us and we we're like, you know, like one year apart because that's what you do, boom, 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 boom. Um, and there was a football ground across the road and the cricket thing. And, you know, when we weren't at school, we should just say, go out there and run, you know. And like when we grew up, you just went out until the streetlights came on and that was your sign to go back. Um, and, you know, she would have these people, old white dudes and old white women come in, your children want And my mum oh, wow. is fierce. My mum is, you know, every bit the super protective Arab mum, you know, like proper hardcore not my children. Don't say that about my children. My children are perfect, even today, you know. Like, <laughs> You're looking at um, She's, you know, fiercely uh, proud of her children and fiercely defending of them. And so they'd say, your kids did this, your kids did this. Not my children. Well, it had to be her children because everybody else was a Kyle or a Kevin or a Luke, <laughs> a Peter, Matthew or Paul. And there was Nasser, Muhammad and Kamal. Like it was very clear that it was us. There was no other brownies in the whole joint. Um, and how that manifested itself, like throughout our schooling, you know, primary school and high school, um, actually primary school, much less than high school, was um, a level of racism that doesn't exist today. I mean, it's still sort of out there, but it's much harder to see absolutely. And, mm. and I say absolutely from the sense of things like, um, you know, on Monday morning, uh, go to, you know, grade four and, you know, you see your best friend and how are you? And then a friend would say um, that was your birthday party was fantastic, you know, really, really had fun. And mm. then I'd go to my best friend, your birthday party, how come I didn't come? Wow. And, and he would say, well, mum didn't want the wog milk bar boy there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so that, that, that's one layer of it, but there were so many other layers, yeah. Um, how did that feel? Well, I can't remember how it felt. Oh, like I felt like hurt, but, you know, um, I don't think I, you know, I came home one time, I, I got into a fight with a friend of mine, um, my best friend at the time, Malcolm, and well, they, these three guys, Turkish guys, were picking on Malcolm and, you know, I, and I fancied myself as a bit of a karate sort of guy. I mean, like every <laughs> Palestinian Arab, you know, we all did karate and I was a karate guy. I was Victorian karate champion under oh, wow. 15, so I had some skills. We'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> not, much, not, much, not much skills anymore. That's a long way in the rear view mirror. Um, but, uh, you know, a fight ensued and, uh, I got punched and he chipped my tooth and, um, I'm sure your viewers will see a lot of my teeth, you know, the teeth don't, don't, um, uh, can't hide them. But, uh, Malcolm ran away and left me with these Turks. You know? <laughs> like I jumped in to help Malcolm, he's run away and left me with the Turks, right? Anyway, so I've got home and, and. You know, your milk bar boys, you know, the front door to the house was the front door to the shop. Yeah. So you walk past the milk, the bread and the <laughs> newspapers to get to mum or dad. Anyway, so I've opened the milk bar and, and I saw my dad. And, you know, as a parent, you can tell when there's something wrong with your kid. Yes. Um, I mean, you know, I don't know about you guys, much less me. My, my wife can sense that stuff. I'm only ever really paying attention about myself. But um, my dad went, what's wrong? And I went, I started crying. I was like 12 or something. And he said, why are you crying? I got into a fight and, you know, he chipped my tooth. And my dad went, apeshit. You call me from jail. You call me from the police station. You call me from the hospital. You don't ever come home crying for, from a fight. Wow. 
we don't we don't raise tears here. You're a Palestinian. Yeah. Wow. Father, that was the last time I cried. I, I I'm I think in my life for not from pain that wasn't sadness. So in the last 97 days since October 7, there's been barely a day that I haven't cried once, twice, five, ten times. And there have been the pain of seeing suffering that I wish I could stop but feel, you know, to have the power or impotence to, um, and feel at times impotent to be able to, what, what might I do to ease that child's suffering or that parent's, uh, uh, that parent's pain or how I might offer, you know, or, 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 or how, how, what can we do? And so there's that feeling. So that, those tears are different tears to the fear of, you know, ridicule or the fear of, um, you know, losing face. You know, the completely. Your dad was a real tough man. My dad was so tough, so tough. Uh, one of my favourite dad stories is my dad died when he was 81. He was about 80, and he had um. um thank you. He um, uh, mum was driving him home from the hospital, and he's and. Like he said to her, he said, just just drive very carefully. And and she thought, because he was tender, you know, no, no, I'll drive carefully, because, you know, because sometimes you're a bit aggressive. And she goes, you know, I'll, I'll drive tender, you know, like, no, because, you know, sometimes you might make trouble. And she was like, there's no trouble. She goes, he goes, you know, you're driving, sometimes you're a bit, you might, there might be an incident. And he goes, she goes, there's, there's no incidents. I, I drive, I'm a better driver than you. <laughs> there's a point at where she'll just snap, yeah? She goes, he said to her, listen, I want you to drive sensibly because if we have to fight, I don't think I can. <laughs> like I'm feeling a bit weak. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, revolutionary strength, commitment to justice, to humanity, you know, you think about your life and the things you went through and the opportunities. And, and certainly as a Palestinian, I'm a triple A Palestinian and, and triple A doesn't mean it's actually the least connected to Palestine. I'm triple A because I'm Australian born. So they can't take my citizenship. Most Palestinians are not Western born. Mm. Yeah. Most Palestinians live as refugees, either in Palestine or in Gaza or in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, you know, Iraq, and they live terrible lives as refugees. Many of them have made money and success and have, you know, assimilated and, you know, et cetera, immigrated. But to be Western born, to be Western assimilated, to have had some business success means that I'm quote unquote, you know, the freest. Mm. I'm the least connected to the dirt because I'm the furthest away. Yes. You know, it's most easy for apartheid Israel to say, you don't belong, you don't come here, you're Australian. But I'm the best experience of having a life. But with that I say with that comes a responsibility, yeah, because mm. I've got this advantage, because I've got this privilege of being this triple I, triple A, um, privileged Palestinian. There is a greater responsibility on me to speak up and speak out. As a as a young chap at school, these these topics were they coming up in the household? No, no. Do you, uh, do so you at, at home, yeah, I mean, at home. our house, like our lounge room, the, you looked up at the ceiling and there was a Palestinian flag painted on the ceiling, you know, like our house was full Palestine. Um, you know, before we had an ambassador here, my father was the ambassador. You know, when a Palestinian came to Australia, you know, we used to have 10 plates. We now had five. Oh, you know? wow. Um, uh, and, and as modestly and, um, and I say, you know, I look back now, we were poor, yeah? Like our shop was... Not a great shop. There was many 
um, Lebanese and Arabs who had milk bars and did really well out of the Yes, milk bar. yes, there was. We had the actual opposite story. Um, not only did we not do well, we in fact got to the point where the bank was going to foreclose on our milk bar because of, um, uh, you know, how bad things were. And they were bad from the point of view of the economy, the recession we had to have, 87 to 91. Our loan was with Pyramid Building Society and Pyramid Building Society was offering people interest rates, fixed term interest of 17%. Yeah. And they would lend the money at 19% because my dad was so much older than my mum. The only way for him to get a mortgage yeah. was to go to a third tier lender. Yeah. And the third tier lender was FAI First Mortgage. And so when the bubble burst and the recession came, all of those people that had term deposits of 17% lost their money. Yeah. And it was fantastic because that meant they lost our mortgage. Yeah. Not really. They lost everybody else's money, but they didn't forget who owed them. Yes, that's right. Um, and so and he said correctly, yes, 19% yeah. if you're listening. Because yeah. no, not many kids know and, and really yeah. understand what happened. Yeah, yeah. So you go, um, so Pyramid Building Society goes broke. Pyramid Building Society was um, uh, based in, founded in Geelong. Geelong was where Ford was, as well as Camberfield. Um, <clears throat> it was a labour seat. Uh, the uh, John Kane was the premier here. We can't lose that seat. Before what well, is now the Commonwealth Bank, before that, uh, states had state banks. So we had the State Bank of Victoria. The State Bank of Victoria was owned by the state. Mm. Uh, the State Bank of Victoria took over Pyramid Building Society and went, um, and politically, the Labor government said, we're going to find a way to get your money back. Over a, about a decade, everybody got like 100 cents in the dollar. You know, oh, wow. but it took a long time. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, the reality of deposits are then lent. So most debt is actually secured against uh, a property yeah. or whatever yeah. it might be. Asset. An asset, yeah. So the State Bank of Victoria took over FAI First Mortgages, uh, took over um, Pyramid Building Society's uh, loan book and went, okay, who, what's the easiest way for us to get money is to foreclose. And so they look through the loan book and they go, wow, we've got this old wog dude who's, you know, in his 60s and he owes 100 or 90 grand on a business, on a house business shop that's worth 100. Wow. We'll, we'll send them a letter. So I came home from uni one day and dad said, read this letter. And I went, well, that's not a good letter, dad. And and the letter was, you've got 14 days to pay us back $90,000. And, um, oh, uh, you know, we're like, what the hell? And um, uh, we found a guy, you know, the, the the Arab drums of network back then, you know, who do we contact them? And we ended up with this guy, um, Peter, and Peter was a mortgage broker, a Lebanese, third generation Lebanese guy. So his parents came in the 18s. Oh, wow. Um, and he said, we're going to do this. And I went, what happened there? Um, so we're going to refinance from the State Bank of Victoria to this company, FAI First Mortgage, which is another third-tier lender. Dad's going to go on the age pension. Nasser, you're going to buy the house. Um, uh, you're going to have to get a job. And so at 21, I had a $107,000 mortgage at wow. 14% with FAI First Mortgage. And um, that was... You're chucking you know, deep in. You know, I, I was a businessman. <laughs> so, <laughs> Entrepreneur. <laughs> Entrepreneur. Milk bar owner. So... Um, were you working in the, in the actual shop as of well? Of course. You know, I mean like... So uni, you know, work... Well, that's that's what we did, yeah. And before that was the high school uh, milk bar. Did you always that. know what you wanted to do, your career path? No, or? I knew I wanted shiny shit. 
I knew I wanted shiny shit. The, 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 the pursuit of shiny shit was what motivated me. And, and a big chunk of that, if you go back, was because we grew up poor but in a rich suburb. You know, mm. I, you know, so we, you were in Beverly Hills. I was in Beverly Hills, baby. But, I, you know, we were not that people. <laughs> so I would, you know, walk to catch a bus, to catch a train. So to you catch always a bus. wanted to play golf. <laughs> And, and the Porsche and, you know, the shiny watch and, you know. SubhanAllah. Yeah. It's amazing the, how that affects us, isn't it? It's amazing that well, the success, our environment, yeah, our yeah. environment is so powerful, isn't it, really? And well, that's your environment, which is quite rare, really. Well, that was my environment, but it wasn't my environment. It was my environment because I, I went to a rich school on a scholarship, yeah? It wasn't my brother's environment. Um, oh. So, you know, they went to the local school. So I went to the school and like it on... Friday, they got picked up in a Merc to go to Portsea or they got picked up in a Merc to go to Buller, skiing or the beach. Yeah, yeah. On Friday, I caught the walked to catch a bus, to catch a train, to catch a bus, to walk to the milk bar. <laughs> mm. um, um, you know, and, and, and at that time on the 15th of October, 1981, how shit was life. But I look back and I went there and my brothers were there and, you know, we got, we had a couple of tennis rackets and. Next door to us was a petrol station and they closed at lunchtime and we had a, a line on the on the wall of the uh, petrol station, which was the wall of the shop, and we'd play tennis, you know, like a squash tennis. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah again, played with my brothers. That's what we did. Or we ran, ran across the road and played uh, played football. But you go back to that and all those kids that didn't invite me to the party and didn't let me come to their events and I wasn't allowed to get in the car. And some of these kids lived down the street from us and the mums wouldn't say tell NASA to jump in the car, we'll drop him off. You know, like a 12 minute drive took me 45 minutes to an hour sometimes to get home, you know, and, um, they'd be, they were customers of our milk bar, but they would never consider, um, giving, giving me a lift. Wow. So everything for, for 30 something years of my life from that sort of period till, you know, my early forties, everything that drove me was about proving myself worthy to those kids that I never even knew anymore. Maybe if I had so this if you stuff, made it, I could be worthy. Yeah. They'd invite me you to exist. the party. Yeah. yeah, I could go to that party now. Wow. Um, and and you know, each of us has an epiphany at different times in our lives and whatever. And what's what is actual success? Is success having a shiny car and a shiny watch? Yeah. I mean, they're nice, but they're transient. Yeah. <laughs> what, what what's much more important? What's much more important is is what you do and your legacy and how people talk about you and how people think about you and your children. And when somebody says to me. Um, you know, I met your son and, you know, he's fantastic and, you know, you should be really proud and yeah. stuff. And I take all the credit. I say, you know, my wife, you know, she, she's done nothing. <laughs> it's, it was all me. If it wasn't for me, this kid wouldn't be that good. That is much, much more success. Amen. When, when, you know, we speak at a rally today or we're talking about Palestine and people come up and, and uh, sincerely and warmly thank me, like as if, you know, I, it's, it's a duty. As I said, a triple A Palestinian, it's our responsibility to use our privilege and our voice to speak up and out. question is, when did that change? When did that change? Like yeah, the, what, what, what age, when, what age when, did, the, did the bulb yeah. say? Yeah, so so like we all of us are chasing dunya, chasing yeah, yeah, yeah. materials. I, I, think, I think late 30s, early 40s. Were you married? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, like my wife's far better human than I am. Um, uh, we can testify to that. Yeah, both <laughs> um, and she's always been far more grounded in our um, in our faith. And um, is your wife Palestinian? Palestine? Uh, Lebanese. Lebanese. Oh, yeah. you did your dad's path, huh? Well, the best Palestinian in the world is a palbo. 
half pal, half Lebo. Um, but every Lebanese that marries a Palestinian, she became Palestinian like my mum did. So, <laughs> no, so very blessed. So when, when we first got married, you know, because I had a lot of self-belief, a lot of self-belief. You might be surprised. Where did that come from? Well, I don't know. Like I, I think, you know, some people, who knows where self-belief comes from. I, I certainly didn't grow up in the environment um, uh, scholastically and geographically that should say you should be very proud of yourself. But, you know, we had our mums, you know. Mm. And so who did you look up to then? Who was that person that you looked up to? Like, Was there somebody that you had that you thought, you know, I want to be like them? Was your dad your hero? Oh, absolutely. Dad was a hero, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and just because of how impactful as a human being he was, but also how... Um, the gravity my dad had, you know, in, in space. Did he take you with you everywhere he went? Uh, often, absolutely. But like, not, you know, so anything that was domestic, but more than going anywhere, people came to us. You know, mm. our place was, you know, Palestine Central, you know. Like the embassy. The embassy. So, you know, all we ever did was smell uh, coffee and cigarettes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the good old days when we used to put cigarettes on. Well, you know, the packets were open, you <laughs> the know. Were open and, and there was <laughs> all, all, all the along. fingers were sticking out. Like, <laughs> <some> on, yeah. <laughs> Make sure you get some cigarettes <laughs> ready. And it was on a wheel. like, <laughs> you know, And people used to smoke as if it gave you health. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, I've got to smoke better more so I can get fit, you know. Which one would you like? <laughs> if I could just smoke there's a little a bit buffet, more. There's a buffet, I remember. Yeah. The buffet, buffet of cigarettes, yeah. I remember that. Mm. Yeah, on, that, on the Lazy Susan, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so there was that concept as a hero, but like as a... As a um, you know, my very first mentor was in my early 20s, was a, um, an Anglo-Indian guy that came into our shop and, um, you know, he followed Carlton as I did. And, I, you know, in our shop I had, this is after I owned the shop, yeah? And I say I owned the shop, I actually, the responsibility of owning the shop changed, you know, in the sense of the bank's coming to get your house. The only way to save the house is if you do this. And I, I took over the shop. I, I took it over. So fully. Yeah, fully. So what it looked like, and so part of that whole refinancing thing was you're going to have to go get a job. Mm. Um, we're going to run the shop. That's going to go on the age pension. And so I and I worked with Peter and we created a budget and this is what the budget would look like. Um, my two brothers and I would share $100 for the week. Mum would get $200 in housekeeping. Um, I'd open the shop, go to uni or, or, or work at that point. Uh, my brothers were at uni and mum and dad would come, you know, take over the shop at some point, um, we'd work, come back at five o'clock, oh. et cetera. Because my dad, you know, was in his 60s, late 60s at this point. So, you know, actually doing the whole 18 hours was was a, was too much long of a stretch. Um, very long days, yeah. And um, uh, so I took over. And so, you know, I'd go boom, 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 boom. And whatever, mum has $200, whatever was left over, I would send as a... Mortgage payment. Mortgage payment. So the minimum payments were like 700 and something dollars. And I had this letter that I'd typed out in the old dot matrix printer, yeah? Yes. And it was, you know, had date and you could write that in. But then it would say, Dear Dudley, please find an extraordinary principal repayment of space. Um, uh, please send me an updated statement as to yeah. your sincerely Nasser Mashton. And so, you know, I, I photocopied this stuff back when you had to take coins into the yeah. public, library to do, uh, public library to do it. And, you know, some months I'd write, please find an extraordinary principal payment and it would be $2,000 because wow. the shop had Mum only got 200 My brothers and I got $100 and, you know, 30 bucks each. You know, so you learnt how to keep the coupons, two for one, um, <laughs> pancake parlour. 
um, half price Tuesdays, tight ass Tuesdays at, at the yes. cinema. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and so, so you learned how to be frugal, how to how survive because you know you had thirty bucks to get you through the week. And so when your mate said, "Let's go out somewhere," um, and they went, "Let's go here," and you're like, "Jesus, there's a cover charge," you know. I'd get there at seven o'clock and just sit in the corner and wait till they got there because if you entered at seven, it was for free and they got there at 9.30, it was 10 bucks or whatever, but you know. So the milk bar that was in Bo Morris is where we grew up with that racism and like at Mentone Grandma, I remember my divinity teacher because it was an Anglican school, you know, it was a Jesus school and um, something, something and the new divinity teacher, he said, you know, where are you from, NASA? And I said, oh, Palestinian. Like now when they ask me that, you know, I go, Camberwell. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, but where are you from? Oh, I was born at Dandenong Hospital. You know, now where are you from? Australia? No, but where are you from? Like Earth? What, 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 what are you asking me? Like I want them to realise just how racist they are yeah, yeah. by asking me where I'm from. Mm. Um, but he said, where are you from? And I said, uh, my, my, I'm Palestinian. He goes, Palestinian? I said, yeah, where Jesus is from. And he went... And because everyone in class was a Matthew, Paul, Peter, Luke, you know, uh, John, all the disciples from the the <laughs> the, the Bible, you know? And you said, you know, like Jesus used to look like me, not like Matthew, Paul, <laughs> Peter, Luke. And these aren't our names. You know? <laughs> Matthew, Paul, Peter and Luke weren't called Matthew, Paul, Peter yeah, and Luke, you know, so Mr. Funny. Smith. <laughs> so that, retali- that sort of re- rebuttals, the mm. way you were rebutting there, that gave you sort of a different character building strength. Absolutely. So when you, so when you look at sort of, like we say that, like you've had that opportunity to be able to pr- sort of protect yourself in a way mm. that was quite, you know, using nouns. A lot of these kids don't get these opportunities to, like, they're not yeah. in that environment. No, no, correct. Like, you know? So we're, we're, like so many people have come up to me and said, how did you keep your calm on Sky News? You know, for 14 minutes the woman went, but Hamas, but Hamas. How did you keep you cool on Q&A? How did you keep you cool with the Neil Mitchell? And I said, well, the reality, unlike most uh, uh, Australian Arabs, is I grew up white. <laughs> yeah. And I grew up white and um, not because mum and dad were white, but because there were no brownies around. There wasn't an Italian. There was no Spags, no Greeks, no Lebs. No, it was nothing. Everyone was a Matthew, Paul, Peter, Luke. Yeah? Mary, Jan- Jane, Kylie, etc. And so that passive aggressive hate was my life until I was 17. Yeah. Wow. And so for my whole growing up. How did it not break you? Like so many, like, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I must admit, <clears throat> like some guys, we've sort of seen this and some people like cop a little word and they break, you know, we've seen mm. But ha- what was it about it that didn't allow you to break and that you had was so resilient well, to yourself? Break. I mean, of course I broke, you know, like, you know, how many times? F this, F that, punch on. I mean, every lunchtime there was a punch on at, at primary school. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were, so nobody played with us. Like, you know, I was in grade four, my brother's in grade three, my other brother was in grade two. We used to play together, like, because no one would play with us. Wow. You know, we weren't allowed to anybody's house. You know, we're not having that milk bar kid over here, you know. What was the hardest moment at school then? Like, uh-huh. What was that, like, you know, I mean, of course, if you had, you had brothers, nobody else, like, what was you, like? Know, you know, so you. I mean, it's the norm. It's just the norm. You become it's used to it. Norm. I mean, like, you know, the, I remember one of the, wor- one of the things that I reckon, um, I look back and go, I wish I had the time machine, you know? So, cause sometimes like mum picked me up from, from school 
And, you know, we had the three on the tree, Kingswood, you know. No, our kids will never know this stuff, you know, undoing the window, you know. Um, the three on the tree, Kingswood, you know, the, mm. on the clutch. And, like, I saw mum coming and I've got, you know, all these kids are getting picked up in BMWs and Mercs and I see the Kingswood coming. I'm like, I'm so embarrassed. Oh, mum, what are you doing picking me up? And they're going, Kingswood, in my head. And I'm rushing to get her to pick me up over there so that my friends don't see me. You know, the shame, you look back and go, what the hell? All of that stuff. And here we are controlling um, now we're the survivors or entrepreneurs or whatever you want to be. Um, and we're writing every um, every month between $1,000 and $2,000 uh, extra on the repayments. And my brothers are finishing school and they're starting work. But the racism doesn't stop. So I was at this job and this guy, you know, had there was like five of us had started um, at the same level. And uh, Monday I had the shit job, you know. Tuesday I had the shit job. Wednesday I had the shit job. Thursday, Friday. I said to, to my supervisor, I said, listen, you know, there's four other guys here. Why do I keep getting that job? And he said, put your hand out. Um, put my hand out. And he said, now flip it over. I flipped it over. He said, is that side lighter than that side? Wow. And I went, yeah, yeah. Like I'd never actually articulated in my head that in fact the top of my hand's darker than the bottom of my hand. And I went, yeah, yeah. He goes, that's because you're a nigger. Now go to the front door. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's the, that's now the early 90s, yeah? Um, so again, people go, how do you keep your cool? Well, look, that's, you know, how do you survive in that space? You know, you just find a way to suck it in and go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead. Um, and so what I used to do, and as my brothers did, we would work two days for every day. You know, whatever the two days were. Sometimes it was the milk bar day and a work day. On the weekends, of course, there was no weekends. It was, you know, the milk weekend. Um, And then, you know, we kept paying and paying and paying. In early, um, uh, in early 95, um, 94, 95, you know, a billion years ago, um, the guy I used to send the money to, his name was Dudley. Um, He was the general manager of FAI First Mortgage. Um, a, A really good business run by Larry Adler, a strange Jewish guy. Um, who died and got left it to Ron Adler, who um, was not a very good guy. I'm um, both Zionists, but I mean, you know, the Australians are allowed to have their political beliefs. Um, but he actually collapsed um, uh, the HIA, I think, or one of those really big insurance companies that, oh, wow. you know, when um, when when the world fell apart after September 11 and stuff. You know, real, real, real big corporate collapse. But anyway, and he came to me, he flew to Melbourne, he said, now, sir, I want to meet you. Um, and I went, okay, you come. And uh, why? Well, well, a like month five, you know, the repayments were seven hundred something bucks. And dear Dudley, please find an extraordinary principal repayment of thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars, whatever. And as you know, we we started working, my brothers and I. You know, we get annual leave, and every year I'd sign away my annual leave. You know, you get four weeks holidays. Well, yeah. Just give me four weeks pay. Yeah. You know, there's no holidays. Um, no. And some weeks, you know, some months we'd send extraordinary principal repayment of $7,000. Everything was got to pay the house off, yeah? We've got to pay the house off. Good to call um, And I want to meet you. And so, like, early on he called me up and he thought, like, we would, you know, drug dealers down there, you know? <laughs> what, what's happening with these guys in... in How are they paying so quickly? Uh, what are they doing down there? And I explained to him what had happened and, you know, he was an Indian guy um, and, you know, gets it that, you know, when something happens to your mum or dad, you don't leave them behind, Yeah, you know? You fight. It's happened to you. Yeah. Exactly. 
that's what our culture is. You know, one of the, I remember one time I did a speech at um, a fundraiser and somebody, something I said, you know, indigenous cultures uh, don't have homelessness. Indigenous cultures don't have hunger. Indigenous cultures don't have, um, what they have is, is love. If there's 10 houses and 10 people, everybody's got one house. If there's five houses and 10 people, there are two people in each house. Mm. If there's one loaf of bread and one person, you've got a loaf of bread. If there's two people, half a loaf. If there's 10 people, everybody got two slices. That's what the world should be, mm. you know, what it should look like. Um, that Well, of course, if something happened to dad, if they're coming to get the house, I don't just leave that behind and go, ah, you tried dad, you know, good luck on the pension. <laughs> good on you, mate. <laughs> you know, I've got to go over here and live my life, darling. Um, uh, anyway, so we met and this is in, in early, early in the year. And he said, you know, we think you're going to pay the house off, uh, um, in July, in August. I said, no, you know, I've got a bonus coming. I'm going to pay the house off in July. Mum's birthday's in July. I'm going to give her the title to the house. Bob's your uncle, mate. Done. Uh, we're free. He said, what are you going to do then? Uh, and I went, what do you mean? He said, what are you going to do then? What, what is, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, well, today, I mean, you're, you're living pretty modestly. And I said, modestly? Modestly is not even a word, mate. And I remember pushing the chair away and putting my foot on the table. And like the shoe had a hole in it. And, there were, you know, I had something not repaired, but inside the sole. Um, and, and I pushed the table away and, you know, mum had sewed a great big patch in my groin. And I showed him the cuffs of my shirts. Mum would flip the cuffs and the collars on my shirts. Wow. Uh, and I had a watch, and it was the coolest watch. But it was Mickey Mouse. <laughs> I had a Mickey Mouse watch. I was 24. I remember it was 24, 1994. Wow. And I said, I'm buying new shoes. I'm buying a new suit. I'm buying a new watch. I'm getting a new car. I'm going on a holiday. And I can't remember the list I had. <laughs> <laughs> Because at this point now, 94, we'd gone from my brothers and I sharing $100 a week um, uh, to now. Um, so now we're in a house. The milk bar, we, we closed the milk bar down, ended the, you know, we had a personal guarantee on the lease. So we worked out the lease, closed the shop, and now we had a house. I had a bedroom, yeah? Um, so now when we worked, we no longer had the milk bar. Yeah. You know, like we're like normal people. Yeah. Saturday, what am I do here? <laughs> what do people do on Saturdays? You know, like never before. Yeah. Um, and and you know, I'm reeling off the list of things that you do now that you know we've got. I used to have a hundred dollars a week when I pay off the house. You know, I'm earning fifty grand a year. I've got a thousand bucks a week. Yeah, baby. You know, <laughs> we're gonna make it rain because that's what success is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I gave him the list, and he said, okay. And I said, why? He said, well, today um, in Australia, nobody's living like you. And I went, okay, <laughs> I don't think anybody would want to live like we live. You know, I used to steal toilet paper from work. He said, well, nobody's living. I said, no, of course, nobody wants to live. Well, who would want to live like this? He said, well, today you earn that and you spend this and you use all of this to pay off the debt. I said, of course. yeah." And he said, and now you're talking like you want to do that. Earn this and spend that like everybody else. Yeah. And I went, doesn't everybody? Isn't that what? Okay. And he said, well, today, if you went from here, earn this, spend that, to this, you double your lifestyle. Whatever you're doing today, you double your lifestyle. Mm. 
And most people don't double their lifestyle in their lifetime. Yeah. Mm. You're going to double it overnight. You've had the training grounds. Yeah. You're living modestly, saving 80% of what you guys earn, working together, common good, common goal. If you doubled your lifestyle, you'd still be way ahead of everybody else. I said, okay. And he said, if you went from <coughs> here to here and then you did something with this bit, tomorrow could be different. Wow. Great advice. And I went. 21? 24. 24. What great advice. I wish we had that advice at 24. <laughs> <laughs> like with the opportunities that fell through our fingers because we didn't have the correct financial advice. We never had a mentor advising us in that manner. Mm-mm. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Look, I don't. I don't know that he um, he wanted to make sure that there was some level of intervention. Mm. Like he wasn't an advisor or anything. He'd warm to us because, you know, we were wog kids saving mum and dad. Mm. Yeah, and he was like a brown kid as well. Um, and he was much older than us then. Um, and he said to me, he said, listen, just promise me you'll read this book before uh, you pay off the house in July. I went, yeah, yeah. And so this is January. February, he calls me up. He goes, have you read the book? I said, not yet. Called me in March. He said, have you read the book? I said, I'm up to chapter two. It's a great book. He said, Nasa, the book doesn't have chapters. I got you out. The book had chapters, but he knew that I hadn't started. Oh, wow. April, have you read the book? No. May, have you read the book? Sometime in May, early June. I don't know when. Nothing's on the TV. I see the book. I'll read the book. Not a big book. Not a hard book. Uh, And I read the book. I start sort of nine o'clock, finish at like three o'clock. Uh, I've got to be at the office at sort of eight o'clock. No point going to bed. I just keep scanning through the book. Mum wakes up. She sees me. She's back. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, Mum. Uh, why didn't you sleep? Oh, I didn't sleep. I couldn't sleep, Mum. Why couldn't you sleep? What's, what are you worried about? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who can I bash? <laughs> How do I fix this? You know, what do I need to do? Um, uh, and I went, Ma, you know, I've just read this book. You know, you can make money buying houses. And she goes, yeah, I've been telling your dad for 40 years. He just won't listen to me. Um, you know, the level of entrepreneurialism. Mm. Yeah? Anyway, I went to work in it like a zombie thing because I've had no sleep. Go through work, come home, fall asleep at like, you know, I leave early. I fall asleep at four o'clock, wake up at midnight, you know, like I'm out of sync now. So I read the book again. What was the book? I had to build wealth in residential property or something like that. Oh, wow. Um, read the book again and, uh, you know, one and a half more times maybe. So I've read it, say, three times. There's no way I can go to work because I'm, like, stuffed. So I call up sick, 9 o'clock, 9.01, I call Dudley. I go, Dudley, you know. I've read the book. I read the book two and a bit times. I've had six or seven hours sleep in two days. My head's upside down. I'm reading this shit. Wow. Um, is this real? And he goes, yeah, yeah. I said, I borrow money against equity because we've almost paid the house off. Like, next month I'm paying the house off. Borrow money against the house. I can buy an, an investment property and I rent it out and we get tax back and I use the tax to help pay off the loan and then when it appreciates, I use the equity and I can buy another one and then rent it out and, and tax and then and you'll lend me money to do that. And he went, yeah, yeah. I said, and it's legal. And he went, yeah, yeah. And I said, the government knows that people can do this. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, yeah. And I went, how much will you lend me? And he went, I'll lend you a million dollars. Wow. So four years earlier, they were coming to get the house. Um, And here we were, almost paid off the house. So we never actually paid the house off, much to my dad's disgust. Uh, And we spent 
800 of the million in the next six months. And, um, and then I built a business around providing that sort of advice. Um, mortgage broking, that's accountancy, financial planning, property advocacy, property management, owners, wow. corporations. Or for one book. Um, and a bit of and, and, and a bit of lever. <laughs> <laughs> a, little, a bit of lever. A little in you, eh? Yeah. Um, and uh, at our peak, we had, you know, 150 people, eight different business units, four different offices. Wow. Um, we were an integrated financial services company. Uh, so, so that was success. Um, and there was, you know, my office was about two kilometers from home. And um, someone called me up and she said, what time are you coming home? And uh, I said, look, a couple of minutes, can't be long. Okay, um, so it's 5.30, you'll be home by 6, I'll, you know, get the cooler ready for 6 o'clock. I said, yeah, I'll be, I'll be home at 6. I'll be definitely be home for 6, you know, you can time it perfectly. And it was, look, must have been sort of maybe August, so end of fin year, so I had all the, you know, we're working through budgets for next year for each of the businesses and, and stuff like that. So I had all the P&Ls and, you know, stuff, and I'm working through them. And then someone called again and said, what happened? And I went, I told you, I'll be there in two minutes. You know, I'll be there for six o'clock. She said, it's 10.30. Yeah. Um, so I focused, you know, doing your stuff, no interruptions. You just, you know, blink. Yeah. Boom. Because we're consumed in this because everybody tells us that's the only path, yeah? Mm. Uh, and I went, no, that's it. So that was the decision then to, you know, I would sell. Um, were your brothers part of the team? Uh, they were at different stages, yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, so we sold the business and um, the last tranche of the business finished just before COVID and COVID was as bad as it was. It was perfect for me, selfishly, selfishly, selfish, mm. selfishly, yeah. selfishly, um, white enough to say every word except for selfish, selfishly. Because uh, I don't accept that I'm selfish, except that I'm the most selfish person in the world. Um, it was great for me because it, for two years, my children were uh, trapped with me. So they got to meet their father um, in a more than superficial sense. Because for so long, I was so consumed with, you know, the shiny shit, the pursuit of shiny shit, uh, that my engagement whilst was there and it was much more than my father's. It wasn't as much as um, what I wished you know, with benefit of hindsight, you know, wow. the time machine, because, um, you know, in the, in the, in the years we had a program within our business, we had the turn your brown resume white. So, you know, in our business, it was really hard to get the job of, uh, you know, if you're within 10%, we gave the brown guy the job, the brown girl, the job, and the brown girl might be a Chinese girl. You know? Um, and so many of these crew, like my barber today, he has a PhD. PhD, he's an Iraqi refugee. He has a temporary bridging, he's got a bridging visa. He's got a PhD from Deakin University in computer science, but can't get citizenship. So we, we, I mean, we knew these people, we were connected to this community. So we would say, you come in and look if they had an accountancy background, a PhD in computer. I can't, I, can't, I couldn't help that guy. My business wasn't that space. Mm. Um, but if they were, you know, financial planning or accounting or management stuff, we'd get them in and they'd work in the business for a year. And the theory, the plan is, you know, for six months, the last guy or girl would teach you. And for so almost 18 months. And for six months, you would uh, uh, work it. And then for six months, you would teach somebody else. Nice. But you had to leave before 18 months. 
but not before you trained somebody else. Oh, wow. But now your resume went, you know, um, Colombo Primary School, Sri Lanka University, Deakin Postgrad, and, you know, you did um, BASs and payroll and wow. accounts, trust account, whatever, whichever space you're in, mm. in a white company. And so whilst you were Nasa Mashni and you'd come from brown space, you now had white experience. And so yeah. your resume was now white. Mm. Everything else about it was brown, but you could go get a job, yeah? Wow. And so, you know, the number of messages that I've had along the journey from brothers and sisters, you know, 80% of them ended up being Muslim subcontinent guys. The guy that used to, the petrol station I used to go to, um, uh, there was a guy there and he ended up, uh, we helped him set up a cleaning company. He was our cleaner and did our building sites and all sorts of stuff. And he was my recruiter for brothers and sisters who, you know, were Muslim but were struggling to get a job because they had a brown resume, you know. Wonderfully educated people. Um, but because, you know, they were at Pizza Hut or Shell Server or whatever, they couldn't get that white job. And so the messages I've had, you know, you know, we've just had a baby, you know, uh, I couldn't have done this. We just bought a house. Thank you so very much. The opportunity, you know, and, and their careers, you know, they keep writing to me on LinkedIn and saying, you know, this is where I am now. And you think about all the stuff, all the shiny shit means nothing. Mm. When, when people are talking about you in that way, when people come to you at a rally and say, thank you for all you do. When, um, you look back at the opportunities you afforded people and, and, and the generosity of their thanks. When you, you know, as a human, we don't do it for that. You know, yeah. we're doing it because we have the privilege and the, and the space to. So you're in business for how many years? I'm still in business. Yeah. But I don't have any more staff. So okay. I, I work from home, um, which see, means my wife sees less of me. Now. <laughs> <laughs> but at least she knows where I am. You know, she can come, yeah. come to me and if the course is ready, she can come and grab me. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm an investment manager for investment manager of a property fund. We still do some property developing and stuff. Oh, nice. So in regards to your, to that business where managing people, that was like your freedom of time. Did it really free your time from letting go? Look, yeah. You know, I, 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 you look at pre-COVID, you know, as each of the businesses sold, you know, there was less for me to do um, from a management perspective. Um, and then obviously COVID happened and we're working from home anyway. But there was only one business left was our property management business. Excuse me. And so that, that was in the process of being sold and settled during COVID. Um, so come out of COVID, I'm just doing some property developing. It's not not a huge time yeah, impost. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, so, you know, we've got three jobs going at the moment and you go, you know, I'm doing my stuff, doing my advocacy. You know, I became the president of the Australia Palestine. When did that take place? <clears throat> so I've been on the board for seven years and I became the president uh, just over a year ago. Why? Uh, why did I become the president? Yeah, like what, what did, what, what, why did what, you join? Why, why did you join? What made you join? Where was that point of, I've got to do, I've got to give back, I've got to... Yeah, the first organisation I joined, I think I was five years old. I was a member of the General Union of Palestinian Workers. And back then to create an association in Victoria, you needed three people. So my dad created the General Union of Palestinian Workers and he was the president Mum was a treasurer and I was an ordinary member. Oh, wow. So I was a member of that many Palestinian organisations as a youth, uh, as to beggar belief. Um, and then through my... We, we never we never got to do sports or anything like that because um, aside from being in the milk bar, there was always going to be a rally. Wow. You know, and some of those rallies, my dad was talking to my brother and me. You know, 
Begin Reagan, you should know we support the PLO. You know, we've got pictures. You know, the, the rally is six people, ten people. Yeah, and um, so advocacy for Palestine has never not been. There's never not been advocacy for Palestine. The first rally I attended was an anti-Vietnam moratorium march in December of 1969. Uh, Gough Whitlam spoke at that, and I was in my mother's tummy. Wow. Uh, and each of my children has been at a rally in their mother's tummy. And I took my sons and my nephews to um, to the zoo. Uh, and uh, Yasser and Nasser would have been five, and Khaled and Jamal three and a half, almost four. And we live in, in the east, and as you come up the Monash, where Richmond is, where the silos are, just before the MCG, there's a rise. And just at the top there, you can see the city, the, you know, before you start coming down. So you see the city. And they all just went, free, free Palestine. And I went, no, but we're going to the zoo. Free, free Palestine. No, but Habibu, we're going to the zoo. We're going to go see the lions. We're going to see the free, free Palestine. Habibu, please. And we went to the zoo and they're just running around going free, free Palestine. And look at the penguins, you led them. <laughs> so when, when did we ever? We never did. Uh, we never not. Um, so um, I've always, we've always been advocates for Palestine. Uh, the first organization I joined officially was Women for Palestine. As an adult, yeah, um, I'm for Palestine and whatever that might look like beforehand. I don't care. It's just for Palestine. Um, and then we set up an organization called Australians for Palestine. Um, and then we were doing that stuff. And the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network was set up about 14 years ago. Um, and, and the model and the idea was brilliant and it was beautiful. It was to create a national organizing body to be the warehouse for all of the uh, intellectual property intellectual property around um, Palestine advocacy to be a space where activists and solidarity people and Australian Palestinians and, and those that are concerned about Palestine might come for resources. Um, and, and it was fantastic. Um, when it was first joined, there were some challenges with respect to its positionality on Palestine. So there were two things that I um, had a problem with, and when I say I, my brothers and I, um, and uh, uh, my dear friends, uh, Sonia and Dora, who were part of Australians for Palestine, um, number one, they believed absolutely in a two-state solution, and I don't believe in a two-state solution. I believe in a one-state solution that all the people of Abraham, from the river to the sea, live freely and equally, not half of them, which is the current situation. And secondly, that the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign, um, they believed at the time it was anti-Semitic. It was anti-Semitic to call for boycotts, divestments and sanctions, um, which I believe is the pathway to liberation and justice for the Palestinian people. We should be boycotting companies. We should be divesting from companies and countries should be sanctioning Israel for these crimes. And inshallah, in a couple of days at the ICJ South Africa's case, we will see uh, when the uh, judgment comes down that Israel will be convicted of genocide and that should be a trigger for many countries and businesses and people to start boycotting, divesting and sanctioning Israel. So it started out as a great idea but it had a couple of principles that were mm. I couldn't accept. So we continued to doing our stuff. Um, one of the guys that used to work for Australians for Palestine ended up working for APAN uh, and he was agitating from within for you know to make it you know, quote unquote, less white. It's polite to talk two-state solution. It's polite to say mm. don't boycott. It's not true and it's not Palestinian. Um, so about seven years ago, Michael called me up and he said, listen, um, 
APAN, Australia Palestine Advocacy Network is there. Just needs a little push. You need to join now and just help it over the line. Um, and and he was right. So I joined about seven years ago, and you know we gave it the push. So APAN, and I joined as a committee member, and I was treasurer, and then I was vice president. And I'm the first Palestinian president of the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network. Before yeah. that, it was it's always been run by uh, white guys. Wow. Um, and and who was his founder? Who was the founding? Uh, there's not founding person. There's founding groups. Okay. Yeah. So there was like we were part of the foundation group. Okay. And when we were putting together the constitution, then they went, not these two things. And we went, mm. catch you later, brother. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, and these, these, these um, wonderful white people had the best of intentions and the best of hearts and what they did, which is what we couldn't have done. So, you know, uh, there is a very solid argument that they were right. Yeah. yeah, there's a very solid oh, yeah, argument yeah. that they were right. You said the foundations really, yeah, we can't, yeah. can't build it. They op- they they got the it's, door open. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like sometimes you know we can be a little bit too, um, <laughs> a little bit too Palestinian. When there's no compromise, the door's always closed. And, yeah. and, and I've heard that argument where there has to be a little bit of compromise just to crack the door open, mm. and then mm. then it takes a long time to open yeah. a full door. So we have passionate. Yeah, the door in, baby. Yeah, so the door stays closed. Subhanallah. Yeah, so they, yeah. They, they they crack the door open really. And and you know some sometimes allies will crack the door open and say it was all me, and say the way to keep the door open is for me to be there. Mm. And uh, we've been blessed that those allies worked with us, worked for us, opened the door and said, the door's open now, you need to do it. Wow. So they Amazing. moved out of the way, which is um, <clears throat> is, a bu- is what allyship is supposed to be. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to use my power to open that door for you and my job is to move away and if you need me, reach out. So, oh, wow. It's your fight, it's your struggle, it's your, uh, your cause. Mm. Um, and um, we've been beautifully blessed for that to happen. So... Uh, Australians for Palestine folded into um, APAN six or seven years ago. Um, and, you know, it just sort of happened. Subhanallah. Amazing work you're doing. Can you just tell us a bit about the work for the yeah, viewers that so, might know um, much? So for the viewers that don't know, how dare you not know, um, <laughs> you should visit our website, apan.org.au. Um, I'm sure Lewis is going to put that on the on the screen as a hyperlink. <laughs> APAN, Australia Palestine Advocacy Network.org.au. Um, you, you can go there and you can see all of our resources. Um, we do everything from advocacy, public education, media, um, you know, media press releases, but also op-eds, um, radio interviews. There you are. There we are. Absolutely. Um, there's our events page. So we're, we're a network now that has close to 2 million members. Wow. And I say 2 million members because we, we have so many unions that are, have joined. So with last early last year, the Australian Nurses and Midwives Union, which is Australia's biggest union, almost four hundred thousand members, they they joined APAN. Um, you know, Trades Hall, which is the peak representative body of the union movement in Victoria, is a member of APAN. Um, so, but also churches, you know, the Quakers and 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 so many different little churches and congregations, but also, um, you know, the Australian Friends of Palestine Association in South Australia, which is a local group. They're members. You know, we, we sit as the peak representative body um, as a resource for those organisations, but also as a um, one of the things I'm most proud about is we're doing so much youth stuff. And we talk about, you know, your camps and stuff. We do some youth camps for for Palestinians to be 
more comfortable being Palestinian? Um, And what does that look like from an advocacy point of view? What does that look like from um, engagement with your your workmates, your your school, etc.? And how can you better represent Palestine to make sure that, you know, we're humanised? Because the reality is that what's happening to us um, is happening because of what the West and the mainstream media give to Israel, which is impunity, yeah? And it gives Israel impunity because they're seen as white and we're seen as brown. And if you're brown, you're othered. You know, you have a look at the um, mm. the media on um, Monday when they found that bomb on that guy's house. Yeah. You know, I've spoken to him, loveliest guy, but he's as Aussie, as Aussie as you can imagine. He's got a flag in front of his house in solidarity with us, yeah? And he's got a sign that said, Christmas is cancelled in Bethlehem. Christmas is cancelled here. Beautiful solidarity, yeah? And um, some crazed Australian Zionist, whether they're Jewish or not, might be a Christian Zionist, who knows, um, has put a bomb on his car. You know, you've got one day to take the flag down. They call in the bomb squad. You know, the robot comes out, yeah. you know, the whole kit and caboodle. It takes three days to get in the media. Three days. I won't tell you the sort of agitating we did in the background, APAN, to try and make it a story. Like, wow. If it had been in Caulfield, oh, if it had been in Bondi, there would have been a helicopter, live cross, Carl Stefanovic, back from holidays. <laughs> Carl, what's going on there? <laughs> well, people are very scared. You know, can you imagine the, yeah. the, the, the hypocrisy, the duplicity? And so when our governments, when our government talks about social cohesion and belonging, you know, we've got to slap them back. The reality is we had a chance. At, so we had whatever social cohesion looked like on October 6, it's evaporated. Because on October 8, the Premier of Australia's most populous state went in solidarity with the victims of Hamas. We're going to light up the Opera House in the flag of the Israeli, in the colours of the Israeli flag. Now, I don't think that's right because, I mean, what the, yeah? But if you're going to feel uh, empathy for somebody, don't just pick one person. You know, where's your empathy for the Rohingyas? Where's your empathy for West Papuans? Where's your empathy for indigenous people here? But in this situation, where's your empathy for us? Make it blue and white, but where's the red, green, black and uh, red, green, black and white for us? <laughs> why, why, why are we special? And if that wasn't enough, that he elevated them, he then had his police minister next to him, the commissioner, you know, and these commissioners, they've got, it's like they're, you know. Uh, yeah. Like the South American dictators, you know, they've got all the badges <laughs> like, the, you, know, you know, all you need is a sword, you know, <laughs> and a cigar, yeah. And uh, and he's there and, and then the Premier, Premier Mins, he went, now Australian Jews, stay home. We're not sure we can protect you. The Premier of Australia's most populous state said, stay home, we're not sure we can protect you. Feeding into the nastiest Islamophobic terrorist stereotype possible stay home Australian Jews you belong we care about you blue and white on the opera house we're doing that because we feel your pain mm. but don't come on the streets because you don't know what these bearded dudes might do the next day the foreign minister says we'd urge Australia uh, we'd urge Israel to show restraint which is what a foreign minister is supposed to say yeah you know Can't this has be. happened to you you know, a, a wonderful, um, wonderful woman, uh, Kylie Tink. She's a Teals member in New South Wales, a Teals uh, MP from New South Wales. She said, as a human being, 
don't let the crimes committed against you in your act of revenge, because it's a human nature, revenge. It's like kindergarten shit. Somebody took my stuff, you know, right. Mm. In, don't let the crimes against you make you do worse crimes. Yeah? Mm. Remember your humanity, which is the right stuff to do. The alternative prime minister, Peter Dutton, goes, she should be sacked. Elba, you're weak. If you can let her talk about restraint at a time like this when we should be saying, mow them down. If anyone is marching under a Hamas flag, the Palestinian flag, the flag that represents 14 million people, if anyone is marching under a Hamas flag, we should be looking at deporting them. This is the same guy that said that Muslim immigration from from uh, Lebanon was a mistake. This is the same guy mm. that, you know, um, uh, said African crime gangs, that people in Melbourne aren't going to go out because of African crime, crime gangs. You know, the, the despicability, the easy free kick they get for talking about brown people and Muslims and it gives them a, for, for a bump in the polls. The alternative foreign minister, Simon Birmingham, went to Israel to show solidarity. Well, you're the alternative foreign minister. I'm an Australian. You want to show solidarity. I don't agree with that politics. Okay, but you want to go. Not only did he go, but the Israel lobby paid for his trip. Mm. The Israel lobby, I mean, go as the deputy foreign minister, pay yourself, the Liberal Party pay. But how can you take Israel money, Israel lobby money, to go and then come back here and go, Israel's great, Hamas, Palestinians bad. And they want to talk about social cohesion. Mm. If you want us to belong, treat us equal. Not better. Not better. I had a, a, a guy I was talking to and he said, this is outrageous, you know, they should be... Thing. I said, listen, just because they hyper-police our community, we shouldn't be demanding they hyper-police anybody else. They hyper-police us because they're racist. This is what policing maybe should be. I think there should be no police, yeah? In a really functioning society, police aren't needed because we don't have crime and stuff. It's a perfect utopia, but I want to dream about that place, yeah? If we're being hyper-policed, we should be demanding that we get policed here, not saying on the other side do that to them as mm. well because we're then we okay this behaviour. Um, but it's normalised if the Middle East, you know, two Middle Eastern men were seen today. I mean, you know, there's enough of us here for Asia to be watching us. They're stealing all our files now. <laughs> How do you counter all the hate and all the f death threats? Have you ever been death threatened here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, I've got a message, um, actually. So, you know, how do you counter it? You know, I can't tell you the thousands of messages, thousands of messages of love I've had. Wow. Thousands. Um, after the Q&A show, uh, Francesca Albanese and I were flying to Canberra. And if anybody hasn't seen, if you're still watching this podcast now, Google Francesca Albanese, the National Press Club. It is the most astounding 45 minutes, 50 minutes you'll ever see. Uh, if you're still watching, thank you for watching and make sure you support mm. the brothers in the podcast. Um, so she is a star, this woman, Francesca Albanese. Um, and somebody had briefed her, I reckon, incorrectly for um, the Q&A. And so she wasn't really prepared for the com combativeness of the episode. Um, and, you know, it was all about me and they were targeting me and in the morning we we're flying up to Canberra, her and I, and I was putting my luggage up and this woman sort of pushed past Francesca and she was like, you know, 
like, what are you doing? And she came up to me, she goes, you are on Q&A yesterday. And I went, hey. And she goes, I didn't know anything about what was going on, but I'm on your side now. Wow. Gave me a hug and went and sat down. Don't know who she is. Nothing. Thousands of messages. There was a message, um, so I was speaking to our executive officer, Jessica, and, and something. I said, yeah, I'm getting all these beautiful messages. She goes, yeah, yeah. So I've got a couple of shitty ones. And she goes, oh, I've got a couple. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, they write to the general email address too. And because you're sending me the good ones. You know? <laughs> and, and I went, is there, any, is there a bad one? She goes, oh, this, there's one, he wants to meet you with a baseball bat. Um, that's the worst, you know, there's been, you know, wow. dog, get out of this country. You know, well, it was a march. We had a march, you know, and this guy goes, go back to your own country. And I went, that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> Join the march. <laughs> and then the gun like, <laughs> like, like that was the cheap shot that, you know, I realized, in fact, you know, the, the struggle is for liberation and liberation looks like um, my children's right to be Palestinian, not triple A, that every Palestinian is triple A, whether it's there or here. Mm. Um, and, and that there's a disconnect <clears throat> for the racist person who says, go back to where you come from, as if they belong. As if they belong. I actually got a story. A friend of mine called me. He goes, do you know Nasa from the Palestinian? I said, yeah. He goes, bro, he's a great man. Because apparently the story goes that he spoke to you on the phone and asked you why why are the rallies ending up in the park instead of staying at parliament? And the conversation back and forth. And he said to me, he was being very harsh with you and very disrespectful. And he said to me, but mashallah, he kept his cool, kept his ground. I think I think that's one thing about you, like I've, I've seen you, mashallah, like, that you give everyone the opportunity to get their frustrations mm. out but bring them back to reality mm. where... I remember that phone call. He was on fire. Yeah. He was on fire. <laughs> I remember that phone call. Well, I've got to go to the American Embassy. <laughs> like, Look, I get it. What we're trying to do is just... Well, I better. Like, and that's one thing that's, you know, cool heads, as they say, you know, especially in times of difficulty... It's hard to find sometimes mm. because we're emotional human beings, and course, especially us labors, we're more fiery yeah. than anyone. Well, I mean, well, I mean, and perhaps we're more fiery for for so many reasons. Not because we're Lebanese, we're fiery because we're the injustice. Yeah, whether it's in Lebanon, yeah. the most beautiful country on earth, the disaster that has befallen our people there because of mismanagement and corruption mm. and theft, and to suggest that it's happening in isolation from the the nature of imperialism that sees and needs to oppress and steal resources from brown people, whether it's in Africa, Arabia, wherever it is, Asia, that, you know, whilst we are guilty, it's not it's not happening in isolation. Mm. But you, you come and you you sit in, in a political dynamic and you say, what is the strategy? What is our strategy? And I say to our people, I say, look, we're 20 and 100 people are supporting us. Now, obviously, I'm number 100. Protest every day, I'm number 100. Uh, and there's 10 people in every 100. I think it's probably six or seven. But say 10 people in every 100 that support them. Do or die. And number one is Mark Liebler, who was on Q&A with me. Yeah? So Mark Liebler's there and Nasser Mashni's here. Our job is not to convince number 11. We can't get to number 11. We're number 108. Number 79 is easy. Just bring him on side. Mm. Our job is to get to number 49. Just to get to number 49. When our movement is at number 49, the scales flip. The scales flip. Mm. Part of that is us us as a community, us as brown people, us as people who love peace, us as Muslims, us as um, others coming together and realizing that our struggle, our struggle 
the, is, is there is a commonality. Mm. There is a commonality. If you look at this country and you go, for a moment, let's just, um, and because, you know, in, in Victoria, we don't see Indigenous folk. Yeah? yeah. They're not visible. Yeah. Because the job here, the genocide here was complete or almost complete. But the further north and west you go, you see more, you see more Indigenous folk. But the hardest thing to be in Australia is absolutely an Indigenous woman. But in Victoria, where we are, um, and possibly in the West, the hardest thing to be is a hijabi coloured woman. Yeah. yeah. As magnificent as Susan is, uh, as a mother, as an educator, as a Muslim, she's fair. So, her, And she sounds like me. Doesn't sound <laughs> like you guys. <laughs> you Habibs. <laughs> Uh, she sounds she sounds like me. So, you know, we're easy on the ear. You know, I'm the Barack Obama of Palestinians, yeah? <laughs> Your English is very good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I said to one guy, I said, I'm, I'm so white. You know, when I actually met Premier Mins, yeah, and a few of these guys, and I, I gave them all the spray. I said to them, when you talk about social cohesion, when my son, who learnt to sail, yeah, sailing, you know, at a yacht squadron, you know when you walk into a yacht squadron and your name is Nasser, plates fall over, <laughs> like the tables shake. Like what the hell? Yeah, is that we, we did the yacht club. We, 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 so we, we understand. We used to, we used to manage the, the, uh, Bendi, uh, the Geelong. Geelong Sailing Brigada <laughs> events. Uh, we, yes, we see them on their yachts with taxis. <laughs> can I, can I re- respectfully to that experience? It's okay because you were serving us. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're sitting down being served by somebody, there's an issue. Mm. Anyway, I said, well, you know, in the reality, if if my son who learnt to sail, don't worry about the fact he plays golf and tennis and went to a private school and, you know, studying architecture. If my son feels like he doesn't belong, what chance a kid in Brody who's living in a, in a commission house and his dad, you know, is working uh, cash jobs on top of whatever just to make, make ends, ends meet. You want to talk about social cohesion? You destroyed it, elevating one person at the expense of another and then demonising us. Not enough you didn't put our flag there, but you said, you're not safe if you come out, they'll come and kill you. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Um, the The... That that coloured hijabi, the challenge she has, and we say, what what is Gaza twenty three? What is the impact? What is that going to have for us as a community in Australia? I hope, and I'll be working every bit as hard as I can to make sure that Gaza twenty three has an electoral promise and a deliverable to the Labor Party, to the Liberal Party in twenty five. Wow, number one. Number two, that that is the impetus for us as a community. And by 28, the, not the, the 25 election, by the 28 federal election, as a, as a community, that we will be a million Muslims by then, that we are demanding and getting, whether it's through our own political parties or through existing political parties or as independents, representation, state and federally, that reflects the size of our community domestically and demographically. Because that will have real impacts. They have real impacts on the schools and the resources in our schools, on our hospitals, on our roads, on mm. every little bit that I got a privilege to because I was a milk bar boy in a rich suburb, you know, that so many of our community don't get because they might be milk bar boys over here, but they might not even be milk bar boys because that service doesn't exist out here. Have, have you, like, seeing, like, you know, the rise of your online presence and, social presence currently have you thought about joining that that movement of politics uh, so or, or getting into that got a realm can we, can we have a yeah, yeah. scoop um i i you know 
I got asked that by Neil Mitchell on, on the radio. Yeah. So, so after I, we were talking about, you know, the school strike and there's too much hate now. And I said, strikes are part of democracy. And if, if you don't believe in strikes, you know, women got the vote striking and you, you're okay with women voting, Neil. And then he said, you know, what about your dad? And then, you know, he said, yeah, what would you call your dad? I said, great dad. He said, would you call him a freedom fighter? Yeah, he was a freedom fighter. Was he part of the resistance? Of course he was part of the resistance. I'm part of the resistance. We want freedom for everybody, Neil. You know, what's wrong with that? And then he said, you know, uh, at the end of it, and perhaps to calm it down, because every time I've been on Neil, he starts out ferocious. <laughs> and at the end of it, like, he's nice and calm. I had one of these, com- uh, an interview with 5AA in South Australia. Hamas, animals. And then at the end of it, I said, you know, and nobody could accept a country that has two sets of rules, whether, you know, if you're Jewish, you get good laws. And if you're Muslim or Christian, you get bad laws. Nobody would accept that. And he goes, yeah, you're right. Nobody should accept that. So, you know, if I get long enough, I can turn anybody. You know? <laughs> um, but still, it's easier to work number 79 than it is number 11, so, right? I don't know. Um, and he said, he said, you're going to run for politics, Nasser. And I said, oh, Neil, I'm too old for that. I'd have your job because he was leaving his job. So I, I don't think I will, but I'm not, uh, not ruling it out. Mm-hmm. Not ruling it out. And I don't know that I'm, I'm the right person to be a, a candidate, although I think I'm... Uh, you know, we talk about self-belief because mum told me how good I was my whole <laughs> life. Um, I, I think I'd make an outstanding candidate and uh, I think that might be something we might consider. But I think what our job might be is to convince our community to have a cost to their vote. For so long we have just yeah. given our vote over. Yeah. And there's been unfortunately so many amongst our community and it is, is the truth of migrant communities that part of feeling like they belong is feeling a proximity to power, yeah? And so as racist as Scott Morrison was in 2019, you know, this is a guy who, you know, saw the Cronulla riots happen on his watch and all that stuff. As racist as that guy is, who when when the situation was happening in Syria and Australia was considering bringing refugees in from Syria, they went, yeah, yeah, Christians. As if, you know, feeding in again to that narrative. That, you know, we don't want any more Muslims here because Peter Dutton had said, you know, the problem with Lebanon, uh, with Sydney is we let too many Muslims come here from Lebanon. That our sheikhs let uh, ScoMo come into the mosque. Mm. I don't care if he's a prime minister. If he speaks like that about us, mm. we should not be is giving him the platform. Ca- yeah, it's going to be accountability. And Ramadan is 59 days away, yeah? Alhamdulillah. We should not be letting Elbow into Lakemba. We should not be letting Elbow into Lakemba. For 66 days, we were getting slaughtered. And then, in the end, he called for a ceasefire. Last week, he condemned. He condemned. And I was very excited to hear Albanese condemns. The mm. problem was the next word, Yemen. <laughs> yeah. Albanese condemns Yemen. I mean, here, Yemen, the poorest country on earth, you know. They're, they're trying to help as best they can. We will keep the Red Sea open for all trade except trade to occupied Palestine. So he wants to condemn. The only thing he wants to condemn is uh, Houthis for Yemen. Mm. And they're killing us. We're killing us. Today, three and a half, almost 4% of the population of Gaza is either dead or maimed. If you take 4% of Australia's population, 26 million, it's a million people. And that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And we want to let him into our mosque to have uh, uh, iftar with us just because he's the prime minister. We gave the space 
to these politicians too cheaply for too long. Mm. I'm not saying that he should never be allowed back, but what's the cost? Yeah. And the cost can't be another mosque. We've got another mosque. The cost has to be real political change that is representative of us as a constituency. Mm. And what does that look like? Better education facilities, better um, uh, anti-discrimination uh, laws, more protection for our hijabi girls, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and and a better foreign policy on brown stuff, not just Hazir, mm. yes, yes, not just Hazir on West Papua, on on the Rohingyas. I mean, the, what happened to the Rohingyas in Myanmar? You know. Oh. Just uh, Kashmir, Western Sahara. There's so many challenges across this yeah, world, yeah. and we, as oppressed people, although we're trying to get up, and so we say, "Take a picture with me, Elba," as if that makes us belong. We don't belong because we've got a picture with Elba. We belong when Elba's working for us, not working us. Wow. Well, That'll be successful. <laughs> when Nasser is prime minister of the world. <laughs> Allah May Allah bless you and Allah bless, you, man. bless your family and all your hard work. I think we usually end our podcast yes, on a... Thanks, we like to end the podcast by asking our guests to describe themselves with a single, concise I am statement. But first, we would like to thank our audience. We've recently hit an amazing milestone of 2,000 subscribers on YouTube, alhamdulillah, and we could not have done this without you guys. Jazakallah khair for your support. Please make sure you subscribe, like, share and comment. That helps us out a lot. So you can see every episode as soon as possible. And uh, we endeavor to do that for you guys every single Friday at 3 p.m. We release an episode. So on that end note, we'd like to get you to end the podcast with the I am statement in a single sentence. I am grateful that I'm, I'm here. I'm grateful that I've been afforded an opportunity and education, the support of a loving family that means that I can fight the fight for my people. I'm grateful that I've got a community that has increasingly become energized and understand, understands the connectedness of our struggle as Palestinians for liberation, our struggle for uh, indigenous brothers and sisters here, our struggle as uh, an ummah for all of us to be one for a fighting for a tomorrow that is better okay. and that i woke up uh that that life is far far more important than shiny shit thank you very much for sharing thank thank you. You. and uh gentlemen it's been a pleasure thank and you. Khair, khair for both of you you are uh, outstanding uh, members of our community and it's been my honor to spend some time with you and uh, May God give you both uh, Amen. Jamie, strength, inshallah, and, and, Allah strength in our community and uh, uplift all our youth and brothers and sisters out there trying to overcome all these beautiful, amazing obstacles they have. Thank you. Thank you.